passage. Uh, Father, we humble ourselves before you. We acknowledge that you are God and that all things have come from you. All things return to you. Lord, it's our deepest wish, deepest desire as those in Christ to draw near to you for your spirit to honor Christ, honor us with your presence, fulfill all your good plans for our time this morning. Lord, such that every person here has heard from you. We ask that you'd honor Christ to that end in his name. Amen. Guys, uh, 2009, I think, Kathy and I took uh, sort of a bucket list trip. We went to England for almost three weeks. We talked about doing it for a long time. And uh, Bethany, our daughters Bethany and Rachel, went with us. And the timing had sort of been set because our daughter, Adrian was uh, graduating from Durham University there on the northeast British coast. So we coordinated our trip with the end of her education there. So our time there started in Durham, England. It's a very old town, like, of course, much, much or most of England is. There's a thousand-year-old cathedral there. It's got a turret that goes to the sky. You can walk up all the steps, just like many, many people have done for generations have. Look out over the English countryside. Very, very lovely. And then right across the greenway from that, there's a castle. And really, if you think castle, especially in Europe, this would be a small castle. Um, One of the guys when this was built was a prince. I don't remember why, but he was a prince, so that's a castle since he's a prince. And that's where we were staying. Uh, While school was out or getting out, they allowed you to come in and rent rooms. So we're thrilled to be in the castle. So the first morning we get up, Mike's looking for his British breakfast, his first British breakfast, right? So I'm the first out of bed, first down the stairs to the Great Hall. And it was, it was a great hall, like you'd think of in movies, tall ceilings, stained glass windows all the way around, large, large uh, area. And then there's suits of armor and their shields and swords and, and all the paraphernalia of heraldry from, from the years. But what I'm looking for is the buffet table on the very front of the hall, Linen table, cloth, you know, and everything's laid out. You know, the Brits eat beans for breakfast. Did you know that? Beans and tomatoes. Yeah, baked beans. So Mike fills his plate. And also in the hall, the tables are lined out. They've got linen tablecloths. Table settings are in place. It's a, it's a lovely setting, and I'm thrilled to be there. So I fill my plate, and I sit down. Now, strategically, I sit down at the table closest to the buffet, And uh, I see that not only have they laid out the silverware, but they've got my orange juice set out there too. So I pick up my orange juice, have a nice long drink, start to take some bites. And uh, I notice my family's not around. Where where are they? So, oh, I see. They're sitting, Kathy and the girls, they're way down on one of those tables down near the opposite end of the hall. It's like, okay. I pick up my orange juice and my plate, and I go down and join them. And life is grand. And I'm sipping my orange juice, and I look back to the table I left. And there's two young ladies that go to the place that I was sitting. And they're twins, Rachel and Hazel. Actually, some of you have met these two gals. What started as a faux pas ended as a friendship. We still actually communicate with them occasionally. But as I look up, they're looking at me with a weird face. And I think, just like this, something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong. Uh, So I notice that Where they sat down, uh, there's one glass of orange juice, but not two, and no no other place setting has any orange juice. 
And I realize as I'm drinking my orange juice and she's looking at me that I'm drinking her orange juice. I'm slow, but I got there. So I went to the table, you know. Get another glass of orange juice. I went up and told her, hey, I think I'm drinking your orange juice, you know. And they were great Brits. She sort of giggles, turns away so I'm not more embarrassed and says, yes, you are. (laughs) So we ended up seeing them just repeatedly, seriously, all over town. It became a joke. So it's like, we got to get your names. If you guys come to the States, let us know. You can stay with us, which they eventually did. But here's Mike. Mike's sitting at the table closest to the buffet, so he's ready for seconds, drinking someone else's orange juice, really at a setting that was never meant for him. That's the lead into this morning's message. I'll just tell you, I'll remind you, we're in the Elder Series. We do this every fall. Each of the elders in a series gives a message. This year's, it is Jesus in the his sayings and parables, and Mark already took us through Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector who went home justified because he simply called out for mercy. Bill covered real wealth out of Luke 12. Larry last week out of Matthew 25 talked about faithfulness with the talents, the wealth that God gives us, and and out of the parable, the master had given the wealth to his servants. Today we're in Luke 14, And we're going to look at a two-tiered parable having to do with tables and where we seat ourselves. I'll mention, too, last week, Larry mentioned um, out of Matthew 25 that sometimes there's two kinds of parables. And you see this early in Mark's gospel, I think maybe chapter 4. It's Matthew 13 in Matthew's gospel. Um, Jesus spoke in parables, and he's got to turn around and explain to the disciples what he meant. And they're like, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you speaking in parables so that the people don't know what you're saying? And Jesus says, well, it's a sign of judgment. And he quotes Isaiah 6. So if you remember Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees God in heaven. He's lofty. He's lifted up. And God says, hey, I need a messenger who will go for me. Isaiah says, I'm your man. And so God says, okay, we'll we'll go to them, but seeing they will not perceive. And hearing they will not understand because their hearts are dull. And in Matthew's gospel, it's clear that at least the religious leadership has rejected Jesus' claims. So just like the folks in Isaiah's day, their hearts are dull. And Jesus speaks in parable, which is a sign of judgment. That's one kind of parable. The other kind is transparent, basically. We'd say in literature, it's like a simile or a metaphor. I say, uh, life is like a bowl of cherries. It's direct, it's transparent, there's no ambiguity. And that's what we've got this morning. In Luke 14, Jesus gave a life lesson by way of a parable regarding seizing honor for ourselves versus allowing God and others to elevate us. If you'll turn to Luke 14, that's where we'll be, and we'll take this in two sections. But the setting, just before the text we'll get in, the setting is a banquet, kind of like we were in in England. It's a banquet hall, it's a banquet setting. And a Pharisee has invited probably lots of people. Jesus is the honored guest. Jesus is probably right up there next to the host. And what Jesus sees are the, those invited to the banquet. The guests at the banquet have been jockeying for position to get the best seats, which would have been closest to the host, or in my case, closest to the buffet tables. They're trying to get the best seats. So that's what Jesus sees. That's what he's responding to first. That's what we'll look at. And then he'll turn to his host, and he'll make an application to the host 
as well. And we'll take it in that order too. So we're in Luke 14, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read from the ESV. And if you use a pew Bible, that's page 873. So he, Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited. That's the audience here. Those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And this is the payoff, verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. This scene could be a little bit like a modern-day wedding feast or wedding banquet, um, especially on the smaller scale. If you've been to a wedding banquet, the reception, especially if they feed you not just cake and nuts but uh, some kind of meal they'll typically you know the bride and groom and the wedding party are sitting at that table and it's probably marked and they might say and this is for the groom's family and this is for the uh, bride's family and so forth it might be all marked out and it's because the folks putting that banquet together they know what your relationship is to the folks who are being honored and so your proximity to that wedding table is a relationship of how close you are or aren't to those being wed. So it's an indication of what's going on. In the Israel that Jesus was speaking in, in Israel that day, it was very, very much a social strata arena culturally. And social standing was a big, big deal. And that's what Jesus is speaking to here. And that was true because it came from the top down. So you remember, if you're a religious or observant Jew, the religious leaders are the folks you're taking your cues from. So the two major religious parties in Jesus' day were the Sadducees that ran the temple. And then the other party was the Pharisees. And they had some different theology. They had some different views of resurrection and other things along that line. But they sort of divvied up Israel as far as social status went for this reason. The Sadducees ran the temple. And once the Romans had come in and they were ruling Israel, basically you could buy the high priesthood. It was up for grabs. You paid the Romans and they said, you're the high priest. So the folks that ran the temple, they made a lot of money. And you know, you see this in the gospel when Jesus goes in and upsets the the money-changing tables and the sale tables, it wasn't that they didn't need money changers. It didn't mean they didn't need animals to buy for sacrifices. They weren't supposed to be in the temple, and they weren't supposed to be price gouging. But the Sadducees would have been making money off of all of that. So for them, there was the status, the social status of, we're the guys that run the temple, and we're the guys making big bucks. So they had social standing for that reason. The Pharisees had developed a little later, post-exile after Israel came back from Babylon and they were the people of the book so if the Sadducees ran the temple it was the Pharisees who by and large ran the synagogue so if you went to any small town or town big enough to have a synagogue a place of the word it was the Pharisees you were typically interacting with they didn't have the wealth of the temple what what they did have was this punctilious observation of the law they knew the law they memorized 
when we say law here, depending on how you parse this, so the law of Moses, the law of the prophets and the writings, we would say, or Jews would say today, the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, would have been the Jewish Bible. They knew it. They knew it forward and backward. They also knew the Jewish commentary. So for them, social status was, do you know God's Word? Do you know the commentaries? Do you, have you got this stuff down? Because that's what they did. And of course, both groups, the religious dress that set them apart, you remember the phylacteries and the tassels and all the other things, they wanted to be seen as, we're all that. We're the guys you need to take your cues from. We are the status of achievement in Israel. To be in the religious hierarchy was to be someone of importance. And of course, again, religious observance and a number of other things went to that. And in a culture in which social standing was highly prized for a sense of personal significance, to be seated in the place of prominence at any social gathering was highly desirable. So the banquet Jesus is sitting at, it's typical of life in Israel in this day for religious people. Not for uneducated people, but for religious people. Now, think of this for just a second. If you've read the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, there's tons of stuff in the Old Testament, their Bible, about humility and pride and God's thoughts on that. So I'll just give you two examples. Consider Isaiah 66.2. In 66.1, God says, I am high and exalted. I'm in heaven, so I'm grand and glorious. And then he says this, <clears throat> But to this one I will look. God in heaven, grand and exalted, glorious. This is the one I take notice of. To this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. Who has my attention? Who do I look down on the earth to exalt? It's to those who've humbled themselves and who live in the fear, the appropriate fear of me. They tremble at my word. That's one. Look at this one too, though. This is Proverbs 25, verse 6 and 7. And so when you read this, you're like, either you guys forgot those verses in your, in your Bible or you chose to set them aside by the way you live. Listen to this one from Proverbs. Don't put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. It's better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. That's exactly, although it's not a king, it's a Pharisee, it's a host, that's exactly the setting Jesus is in. And they're doing exactly what the wisdom of Solomon and Proverbs says don't do. That's what they're doing. The guests sharing the Pharisee's meal with Jesus had Scripture speaking directly to their situation they either didn't remember it or they didn't practice it. Now, the model of social status as the measure of spiritual attainment was completely at odds with God's priorities. So the Jewish nation, the people representing God, lived absolutely opposed to what God valued. And you could see that in something as otherwise trivial as where they were seated around a table. Why would it matter where they were seated? Well, because it represents something of value to them, social status. So more on the, the plane of application, why is it so important for them or for us to have others think of us highly? What's the payoff? What's the benefit? What do they get from that? What do we get from that? Why are we so fragile, no matter what our skin color is, why are we so fragile that where we sit at a table is a thing, as it was for them? 
I'm going to mention two things. You might come up with some others, but I think these are the two big ones borne out through Scripture. The first is this. Because with Adam and Eve running away from God in the garden, we know we are morally and spiritually naked. Because like our first parents, when God calls, we know we're not okay. We're deficient. We're not what He made us. We're not who He made us to be. There's something wrong. Whether you call that a sense of shame, a sense of guilt, a sense of my own deficiency in one way or another, we know it and we feel it and we look for fig leaves, including things like where you put me at your table. It's a way of covering up my sense of deficiency. The second is that we share the sin of pride of our first parents. The temptation they fell for, you remember, Satan's temptation was God is holding out on you, something you deserve and something that would be good for you. But God didn't give it to you. But you can take it for yourself. And they did. And so they are not only, they and we are not only motivated by this sense of deficiency and insecurity, which which you would think means I won't put myself forward. But no, the flip side of that is in pride, we'll reach out to make ourselves something in the eyes of others. Again, it's all about me at the end of the day. The, the insufficiency, the insecurity, the sense of shame, or simply the pride to reach out and exalt myself. It's always about me, whichever direction you're looking at or thinking about. Sometimes our social interactions are little more than me quietly begging you to affirm me, to tell me I'm okay, and better than, than okay that I'm special. And that sense of deficiency leads to the proud attempts to convince others and ourselves that we're okay and better okay than okay that we're all that. Listen to this. This is a quote from an article that just came out this last week. When acceptance is the highest value, so think of social standing or or how other people value me or think of me, When acceptance is the highest value, when avoiding condemnation online is worth more than the truth, the truth will be swiftly discarded. Online likes, followers, and reputations to be Facebook, weak, empty values, dominate the teenage world because teenagers are not being taught alternative ones by the culture or often by the adults in their lives. They are not being given the tools to answer the questions that really matter. What is truth? What is justice? What is the purpose of life? How do I find significance? What, what is that provision? Now, guys, this was written by 17-year-old New Yorker Daniel Idfresny in the New York Post. His parents were Haitian immigrants, and his dad's a pastor. And so he didn't grow up buying what the culture was selling. So he can see the difference between social acceptance as the means by which I gain significance or not. The gospel speaks directly to the challenges they faced and you and I face as well. Christians can afford to forsake the pursuit of social status born of pride and insecurity because of what we have in Christ. I think this is, this is what we lose sight of. You know, what do I have already? So God says, back to verse 11, If we humble ourselves, he will exalt us. Well, what does that exaltation look like? Now, a lot of it we don't see now. We don't see the the full payoff now. Even though we possess many of these 
these exalting, these uh, lifting, these glorifying elements, we may not see the benefit of some of them now, but, but they're ours. They're ours. At the expense of God the Son, the Lord has redeemed us and forgiven us every sin. Guys, just think of deficiency. Deficiency at some level is shame. I know I'm not what I should be. I know I've done things I'm not happy about, etc., etc., etc. To know that your sins have been adequately covered by Christ's blood on the cross, His death for yours, you can't buy that. You can't get it. It's a gift. We say it's by God's grace through faith in Christ. To have every sin forgiven so that like the penitent tax collector in Mark's theme, we cried a mercy, for mercy to God. And what, he, what did he say? He said he went down to his house justified. To be justified in the eyes of a perfectly holy God means every sin is adequately covered. You don't have to worry about any of it. When we confess our sins, our relationship with God is restored. It's never an issue about we're working up. God's favor, we have it. In Christ, we're sons and daughters of the Most High God. In Christ, we have a future glory we can only guess at. I think it's in 1 John that it says, when we see Him, we will be like Him. We'll see Him as He is. We'll be as we should be. As our, we'll have our future glorious bodies. It'll be diminutive to Christ's glory, but it will be like His. It'll be obvious that we're His and He is ours, thinking of Song of Songs. In Christ, you and I will judge angels and rule the new heaven and new earth. How much greater status can you get than that? You know, one of the promises in Revelation in the letters to the churches is that you'll sit on my throne as a judge. Sit on Christ's throne. Now, we're not doing that now. I get that. We're not doing it now, but we will. That's what he said, 1 Corinthians Five says, uh, we'll judge angels. Believers judge angels. To be a son or daughter of the Most High God through eternity is the greatest attainment. It's beyond imagining. We have no concept. Even if you try to articulate this a little bit, what do we know? You know, versus what it will be. You know, you think of John the Apostle who knew Jesus on the earth, but when he sees him in heaven, he, he can't stand up. He just falls down because his glory is so transcendent. I mean, if we, C.S. Lewis said, if you could see people next to you, either in their future glory, the redeemed, or their future horror, the unredeemed, you, you wouldn't be able to stand it. You'd want to worship that person that looked redeemed because their glory will be so great. There's, there's more, isn't there? What we have in Christ. So we can afford to be humble. We can revel in humility knowing Christ is the one raising us to heights of glory. Impossible for us to attain or otherwise imagine. We can exult in our current humiliation, confident of our future glory in Christ. So if I'm a Christian and I know my sins are forgiven... And I know I've been humbled in repentance. God, I'm not all that. I need you to save me. And now I'm saved. I'm justified in Christ. I have all that and more in Christ. Then why would I be tempted to defer to these carnal methods of trying to get you to affirm me or grabbing some form of glory for myself on the earth here and now? Why would I do that? And this is the thing. 
to the degree we don't know, and, and I use know in the sense of uh, there's a, a couple, at least Greek terms in the New Testament for knowledge, and one is epignosis, and it's often translated epignosis. It's often translated uh, knowledge by way of experience. You know, sometimes we say, well, I knew something, but I didn't really know it. Well, the thought here is, if we really know it, that's what we're talking about. If I really know the love of God the Father for me as his child, if I really know the shepherding care of Jesus, the one who still seeks me out when I've wandered away, if I really know the fellowship of the Spirit, I don't resort to those things. But when I don't feel the benefit of what is mine in Christ, I resort to old, carnal, deficient ways of feeling okay about me, either covering my deficiency or exalting myself. It's all I've got. If I forget what I have in Christ, I've still got the shame challenge. I've still got the significance challenge. I'll resort to something. We, we do. We must because we know we're not all that or we think we're all that alternatively and you should exalt me and I should exalt myself. Pride and proud pursuits are as natural to our old sinful nature as breathing. And friends, to be born a human is to be born proud. Pride is absolutely part of our nature. I don't care how humble someone who's not in Christ appears. They're proud. It it doesn't matter. Our carnality is the same. And this could be, we could express this sort of in the way we live this out. So in the parable, it's where I sit at a table. You know, so exalt me, elevate me, put me at the top so everyone knows how special Mike is. But there's all kinds of ways we would do this. Uh, Physical appearance, good looks. Uh, I have successful children. Have I told you about my children? Or have I told you about my grandchildren? Uh, How much money we have, how many Facebook friends we have. How about this one? How big a church we go to? How big a church we help lead? Could that be possible? How significant our friends are. In our pride, we think too highly of ourselves. We do. We also think too much and too often of ourselves. And depending on what kind of psychology you've grown up with, uh, self-esteem was a, was a thing and a phrase for decades. You know, they have low self-esteem. It's like, well, at one level, no one has low self-esteem. Just like there's no real atheist. There's no one really with low self-esteem. The person who is saying to themselves over and over how bad they are, what's their focus? They're the center of the universe. As they talk about how low their self-esteem is day after day, they're the one they're thinking about. It's all about them. And you can't get away from this. This is what pride does. Pride is to think too seldom and too little of others, for sure. Pride is to displace God as the beginning of our existence. I think it's 1 Corinthians 8. We were made from God. We were made for God. Pride is to displace God as the end to which all of of our lives and efforts are meant to point. You know, we are meant to live for Christ's glory and honor with the thought that we'll see him at the end of this life journey. Pride is to set ourselves up as our own Lord and Master instead of humbly coming before God. I love those words of the little prophet Samuel. Maybe he's not old enough at that time to think about pride, but God calls him 
And he says, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Lord, I'm just your servant. What do you want? Here I am. Larry pointed out from Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents uh, that the master gave each servant the responsibility suitable to their abilities. Suitable to their... The, the one who knew them gave them the amount that he knew they could be responsible for if they chose to. And so that's the way that was set up. When we're reaching for things God hasn't given us, that's pride. And I, and I don't mean doing things for God's glory, aiming high for God's glory. I mean doing things aiming high for ourselves. God abhors human pride and vanity. He hates it. It's not a little thing. It's a big thing. This is Proverbs 8.13. The fear of Yahweh, or the fear of the Lord, is hatred of evil. So, okay, if I fear God, if I live in the appropriate reverence, respect for God, I hate evil. Okay, so far so good. What does that look like? Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, this is what God says, I hate. What does God hate? Pride and arrogance. He hates it. It's absolutely opposed to him. And it's actually opposed to who and what he made us. It doesn't reflect the truth. Our pride is a lie. When we see pride in our hearts, our, our thoughts, our actions, our motives, the thing we want to do as quickly as we may is repent, confess that sin to God, and get back in the game, humble ourselves and go forward. We don't want to hold on to this. It is poisonous to us. God is absolutely opposed to it. If we go back to that thought of the banquet Jesus was sitting at, if life is a banquet, God has appointed for us just the right seat around the table. So consider this. I'm going to go through these briefly, quickly. God has ordained the moment of your conception, the moment of your birth, the day of your death, Psalm 135, 139. God has determined the moment of our conversion, John 3 and Ephesians 2. The spiritual gifts you have to exercise, not only the gift itself, but the way that gift impacts others is determined by God, not by you. The sphere of influence in your life is determined by God, 2 Corinthians 10. You don't determine, I don't determine how wide my circle of influence is. God does. God's already measured that out. If life is a banquet, God has seated every one of us in just the right spot. Just like the master in Matthew 25, God's given each of us, he's designed us, and then he's given us those spheres of influence, those spiritual gifts, those responsibilities that he knows we're fit for. So if life's a banquet, God's put us at just the right seat. Let me read you this from Francis Schaeffer. No little people, I've read it before, but it's so helpful. I'm going to read it again. He says this, um, to be wholly committed, wholly committed, we might say uh, sanctified, set apart for God, to be wholly committed in the place, the place where God wants him, this is the creature glorified. So Schaeffer says, on earth, to be where God wants me, for his purposes, that's glory. That's exaltation. He says, this means being what he wants me to be, where he wants me to be. 
So God's the one calling the shots. I'm not. I'm not reaching for glory. I'm just filling the role God's given me. God tells us to deliberately not choose a place too big for us. Think of Jesus' parable. We should consciously take the lower place unless the Lord, use a kind of a strange term here, unless the Lord extrudes us into a greater one. But his point was, uh, uh, serve where God puts you until he pushes you, until he compels you into a larger sphere. He says the size of the place is not important, but the consecration in that place is. Faithfulness where God put me with what God gave me, Schaefer says, that's everything. And he continues on that point, <clears throat> excuse me, about not reaching for something higher. And he says basically this, oftentimes a person will aspire to some greater work or realm, whatever that looks like, he says, to their damage, that they've taken hold of something that God didn't mean for them, and it wasn't good for them, it hurt them. So he says, you know, serve where God has put you. The best thing we can aspire to is not our own glory, it's God's glory. And that's because our glory is not a grand enough topic to give our lives to. But God's is. Your glory and mine is inadequate, insufficient. It just doesn't rise high enough for any of us to devote our lives to our own glory or to any other individual's glory short of Christ. God's glory is big enough for your life. God's glory is a theme so big you'll, you'll never fill it out. But your glory and mine, those are little themes, not big enough for anyone's life. With life as a banquet, Jesus tells us as guests to sit low, to humble ourselves. After he does that, he turns to his host, and he says something to his host as well. This was a two-tiered parable, and he turns to his host to, to say something to him. This is verses 12 through 14. He said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You'll be rewarded in eternity in the future. So when we act as the host of a banquet table, Jesus in the parable says, aim low. So if you're invited and you're the guest, you sit low. But if you're the host, you aim low at the guest you're calling in. Just as guests at the banquet sought places of honor to advance their own status, hosts of banquets could also seek their own honor by the elevated social status of their guests. So you know if uh, maybe Facebook is a good comparison, if the right people are friends on your Facebook page, you gain status by those who said you're their friend. And that would be the thought here. I invite you to the banquet because you're considered important by other people and other people see important people at my home and they know I'm important. So I'm gaining status by the people I invite. That's one thing. The other thing is this. I'm inviting people hoping that they'll do me a favor in the future. So I'm inviting people that can return what I've done when I need a favor for them. And again, in both cases, it's all about me. It's always about me. As the host, now not, not the guest, but now as the host, why did I invite those people and not others? Because I'm feathering my own nest in one, one fashion or another. 
As a host, my temptation is to surround my table with those counted important. Social status, wealth, influence, whatever it would be. Jesus warned the host then and host today, when you host a banquet, aim low. Invite those who don't have social status, those who don't advance my proud ambitions. Invite those who can be of no direct benefit to me because in so doing, I'm serving Christ. I'm serving Christ because I'm elevating others. Romans 12.10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. In fact, Romans 12 is just a great, great passage on not only spiritual gifts, but sort of the demeanor or the attitude of heart we bring into our relationships with others, generally, but also specifically within the church. That same chapter, verse 16, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't be haughty. Don't think too highly of yourself. In fact, Romans 12 starts with that. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't be, think so highly of yourself that you can't associate with the lowly. We could also translate that word condescend. Condescend to the lowly. There's a verse in Psalms, I can't remember the reference, but it says it's God's condescension makes me great. God comes down, of course, ultimately in the incarnation in Christ. God has come down in Christ and it's Christ that lifts me up. God's condescension. Well, we can do that same thing. Proverbs 16, 19 says, It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Better to be with the poor than with the proud. Now, this parable, by all means, does not mean you can't have family celebrations. That you don't have activities or times or, or celebrations of one sort or another in which you invite your friends and your family because you're friends and family. This banquet was about social status. It's about what I could get. But I would say this, you know, the holidays are coming up. Thanksgiving will be here before you know it. Christmas will follow that. New Year's. It's a really appropriate time to make sure that those people that can be of no use to us have a place to go for the holidays. That's a good thing. That we can accommodate ourselves to the lowly. Those who otherwise are without friends or family or accommodations for one reason or another we can invite the lowly to our banquet table. Now, I would just say this preemptively. If Kathy invites you to our house for the holidays, don't worry. It's not an inference of any kind. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. One of the reasons that's so important, has been such an important issue in my life, is because my parents practiced it. And guys... You know, I'm one of 11, and our, t our family filled the table. We didn't, when I was little, there usually weren't other guests. We were it. And you know what? We never got invited out to other families' homes. I, I don't, don't know why. But as older siblings grew up and moved out, and there was room around the table, and, and one table, and two, and three, and four tables set up, my parents' dining room was a menagerie. It was a rogues' gallery. You would... This is the stuff of novels, fiction, and movies. The people that sat around my parents' house. Uh, Kathy and I and the girls picked some of these people up. And my girls just were not sure. <laughs> what? Are you sure we're supposed to be here? Are you sure this woman is the one we're picking up? Yep, honey, this is who we're picking up. But you know what? That's what they were doing. They knew these people didn't have family and friends. And this was a holiday. And they were making sure they had a place to go. And that's what Jesus is saying. Again, it's not against family celebrations. It's when do we need to? When should we reach out to those folks 
for whom this would be significant and important, and they don't have it otherwise. The holidays is a big deal regarding that. So, as a guest at the banquet, we sit low, and as the host of a banquet, aim low. You can if you want. You don't need to. But Luke 22, moving to another banquet, another supper. So at the Last Supper, you know, we call it the Last Supper, but you remember it's the annual feast of Passover. It's a celebration. You know, this is one of those things that starts the week of the Passover week, unleavened bread. And so this was one of the three times every year, two in the spring, one in the fall, in which every male in Israel was supposed to be present for this celebration. So this is a big deal. Remember, it's a banquet. And Jesus would have been the host of this Passover banquet. He would have been one at the head of the table. And in this setting, the night, you know, he's going to be arrested that night. He's going to be dead the next day on the cross. And these guys have been with him for three and a half years. And they've heard these parables. And what are they doing? They're arguing about who among them is the greatest. Right back where we started. They're arguing. And you remember what John 13 tells us what Jesus did. You remember? He's the host. And he gets up and he takes off his outer robe and he puts a towel around his waist and he assumes the role of the lowest servant. You know, in those days you were in sandals, dusty roads. You show up at someone's house, if they have a servant, the lowest servant is the one who washes those guests' feet. And that's what Jesus does. So he intentionally, he's the host, he's in the important seat, but he divests himself of that place of honor to take the lowest place in their group, and wash their feet, which he does. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And remember, he is their master, and he's the one sending them. They're the messengers. Apostles mean sent ones. They're both greater than the one who sent him. If now, now listen to verse 17, though. This is the deal. If you know these things, if you know these things. So these guys knew this from what Jesus had already said. They knew all this. They'd heard it. So if you know these things, not enough. The Pharisees knew those verses from Isaiah and Proverbs. If you know these things, not enough. He says, if you know these things, blessed or happy, significant, exalted, lifted up, content, no shame, peace, joy, blessed, happy are you if you do them. If you do them. Christ's call in discipleship is to humility and the service of others. So when do you and I look most like Christ? It's not in his glory, is it? It's in his humiliation. It's in his lowliness. When we choose to take the lowly place of servant and serve others in love for their benefit and God's glory, that's significance. That's modeling. That's doing what Jesus modeled for us. If we want to know the blessing of purpose and place, of significance, significance now, and honor, of a sort at least, now, of the fullness of God's love and delight in us as his children, we simply do what Jesus did. We refuse 
proud and insane pursuit of our own honor. You remember Philippians 2, Jesus divested himself of his claim to glory so that he could lower himself as the servant of servants. Divest ourselves of a proud and insane pursuit of our honor, and in Christ's name we serve others. That is where blessing and significance, peace, and joy are to be found. That's where we get it today. I hope you have a study sheet. There's a personal inventory, and I hope that sometime you'll, you'll ruminate through those, even briefly, and fill it out. The first one says, I have attempted to elevate myself before others by. Now, friends, it's not if we've done that. We have done that. It's just what does it look like? When do I need to clue in that that's what I'm doing? What have my efforts at significance via some carnal means, what have those looked like so that I'm aware of them? I've done them. All of us have done it. It's a given. The second one is my practice of serving others has been to fill in the blank. What? What is my service of others in Christ's name and cause? What does that look like? Now, if you have to think about this one very long, that might be an indication that we're not taking up servanthood as we are called to. But if I look back and I say, well, these are the ways that I think God's called me, equipped me, gifted me, and these are the ways I've tried to serve others. That's good. And you might say, there's ways that I should be that I I realize I haven't. Well, that's good to know too. The last one could have been first, but I put it here. It goes to motivation. If my personal knowledge of God's love and blessing is a fuel tank, how full is my tank? So again, this is the deal. It doesn't matter how much wealth you have. If you don't know you have the wealth, you'll live like you don't. If you don't know what you have in Christ, you'll live like a pauper when you have the wealth of the world. Do you, so, if, so again, we get back to that sense of what's my experience of knowing God's love for me? What's my experience of knowing Jesus as the shepherd You know, who if I get two out of line, he'll break my leg and carry me over his shoulder. But I'm with him. He won't let me go. What's my experience of knowing the Spirit's presence with me to convict or to console or to motivate? Because again, if we don't know these things, we will resort to carnality. Because it's all you've got left. So think about that. There's some verses. Scripture has so much to say about pride and humility because they're life and death issues. For us. There's a bunch of verses there you can look up for yourself. I'm going to pray. The worship team can come up if you would. Would you guys stand with me? And then we'll close by reading some verses out of Luke 22. I'll pray before that. Go ahead and stand up. Father, uh, pride is a mantle that does not become us. Humility makes us great. We, we ask that we would bear the marks of Jesus' life in us and on us. We pray that Christ would be seen because of our actions, our attitudes, our words. Help us, Lord, to see the places where we reach in pride and shame for something you have not given. Help us to see the riches and the glory we have in Christ, so, Lord, that we can shout, Hallelujah, Amen. Rejoice in the great gifts you've given us until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, for his glory, Amen. Let's read from Luke 22. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest. And the leader like the servant. 
For who is greater 